Ashmi, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure. You are the founder of Engineering Capital, and I've been speaking with you for longer than a year. And, uh, you know, I really enjoy our conversations. They're always at a level of technical depth um, that, that, keeps us grounded in reality. I find that a lot of, um, there are not maybe not a lot of, but there are plenty of venture capitalists who like to play in like metaphors and weird abstractions and all that stuff is really fine. It's, it's very useful. But what I like about talking to you is there's a, a deep empiricism uh, when, when we talk about, about software investing. Can you give me a little bit about your thesis for engineering capital? Thank you, Jeff. I believe if you can derive something from first principles, in other words, bottoms up, that is the most powerful way of getting to any conclusion. So I certainly uh, appreciate that you also appreciate that approach. At Engineering Capital, I invest in companies that are taking technical risk, very early stage, software only companies who have some innovation where there is a doubt on whether it can even be built. Ideally, we know the market for it exists, but nobody has bothered to build it yet or nobody has been able to build it yet. That is what I look for in engineering capital. Your career has spanned very technical companies. Silicon Graphics, Hewlett Packard, VMware. These are deeply complex products. When I think about the modern enterprise software market and I think about the people who are well positioned to understand the complexity, it seems like the kind of people who come from your background, where you have these really complex sales cycles, you have complex products, you have complex differentiations. Tell me a little bit about the key learnings at each of the major companies that you worked at. Uh, They were certainly complex products, but what is more interesting about them is that they were category creating products. We were, when we were doing what we were doing, there was no one else who was really doing it. There wasn't a competitor, there wasn't an alternative. And we were trying to invent a new way of looking at an entirely new market. I wasn't aware of this. Certainly I wasn't a very early employee at Silicon Graphics, but uh, when the idea was first proposed that you would do graphics, you would run a geometry engine as an ASIC in a chip, it was radical. And uh, Jim Clark is on record the founder of Silicon Graphics for saying that he talked to IBM, he talked to HP, he talked to DEC, and everyone thought it was a crazy idea. No one wanted to do it. And that's why he had to go start his own company to do it. Similarly for VMware, same idea. It's like, why would you ever want to run a virtual machine? I remember when we launched ESX server, literally standing on stage and having this these people just flabbergasted saying, why would I ever run a database in a virtual machine? Why would I ever run a web server in a virtual machine? Those are high IO devices. Those are high CPU devices. And uh, I had this instinct in telling people that one day everything will run in a virtual machine. There's no reason not to run in a virtual machine if and when we get there, which we will. And today, of course, everything runs in a virtual machine. So I think this ability to look at the world from an entirely new way of solving a problem and then working backwards from that and saying, okay, what is it that we can do today? How do we make it useful, practical, commercially interesting and viable, and then have a long road ahead where you literally change how the world works. Today, we take 3D graphics for granted. Today, we take virtual machines for granted. This was not obvious in the evolution of computer science. All right, so let's start talking about some deals. Um, 
you're an investor in Kentic, which is Avi Friedman's company. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, we've become friends because we we play poker together, or we we we're deeply familiar with each other's poker careers. We have a lot of respect for each other's uh, gaming skills. And I'm building this new gaming company, and I've been talking to him about game design and and also some engineering theses. You know, doesn't he believe that you basically should run your own cloud? Like nobody should be on, or not? not it's not that nobody should be on the cloud, but like a lot of people shouldn't be on the cloud. Like, isn't that kind of crazy? Well, those questions become philosophical at some point. You know, you can you can look at it from those layers of abstraction, as you started saying. And uh, at some level, the externalities define what is the correct decision for a company. What is the cost of an engineer? What is your business model? So today you have people saying, we're not going to run on Amazon because we're in a retail business and we feel we are competing with the retail side of Amazon. So we don't want to run on AWS. Okay, fair point. That's your strategy. That's your decision. You may choose to make it and run it over there. So eventually technologies get, you know, we run in the real world. We run in a commercial environment where you have many externalities that define the decision that you want to make. And so there's no single right or wrong answer. But within that, there's still a very large number of degrees of freedom. It is not at all obvious that we would all be running our own operating system on an endpoint device as the right answer for Windows and Mac. That evolved because we had Bill Gates, you know, literally a force of nature who drove that decision. The natural evolution was to have a network device. And there are very, very well-known people. I mean, Larry Ellison tried to build the network PC um, and, and lots of people resisted that from Microsoft who did an amazing job of execution and convinced the world that that is the right way to do it. And that became the evolution of Windows. So you have to understand that what is accepted as the correct way to do things or the default way of doing things is a combination of pure technology, force of will, luck, uh, regulation, government, all these things come together and we end up with what is you know, accepted as the norm. And uh, yes, Avi, of course, is you know, deeply technical. He understands uh, networking in a way that very few people do. Um, his initial conversations when he first landed in California, and by the way, I literally drove him from the airport to LA, six and a half hours, we sat together just chatting away. And by the way, that's a privilege. Like talking to him is the most, it's like the most enjoyable thing in the world. Absolutely. It is, it is, I mean, you know, this is not a VC humble brag. It is an honor to be an investor in Kentic and to be the first guy, as Avi likes to say, you were the first guy in California who got it in terms of what I was doing. Uh, and it was just amazing for me to sit and listen to him and understand in how he was thinking about, in his case, managing a network, monitoring a network, looking at how the internet was evolving. Um, but, you know, my, the, the fun for me, Jeff, is that I get to meet entrepreneurs, engineers, dreamers, thinkers every day who are doing this in all aspects of computer science. Um, one of the most fun things in Silicon Valley right now is that we are no longer gated as being a technology company, as being the tech sector. Everything is technology, everything is the tech sector. And this explosion is just such a fun thing to watch. Of course, it also means there's this explosion in the number of deals and the amount of work being done. And so the whole categories of how you define yourself have changed, but uh, that's the fun of technology. It, it permeates every aspect of our lives today and will continue to do that more and more, not less. So, um, 
you know, I thought we could do something interesting on this show because I, I really want to just lay out up front, like how much I respect your thesis and how much I respect how you think about modern, um, modern software investing, or I should, I should say technology or engineering based investing. Um, you know, this is a field that I've studied basically as an offshoot of my, of my podcast. And I've done some work basically, you know, um, as a scout and, uh, and just be, you know, doing some personal investing, like, you know, I probably put, I don't know, a quarter million or so into, into various technology companies at this point. So like, I have some, like, I basically, I follow your thesis. I think it's really interesting. And like, I would say I'm 90% aligned with how you think about um, investing. I think we would probably disagree on a few points, but, but generally speaking, I think we were like very much aligned. And so I thought it would be actually be interesting if I just like pitched you on a company that I'm like raising money for. Like, and I'm totally fine if you say no, by the way, like if you don't want to do this or if you don't want to stay on air, but like, I, I'm, I just think it would be kind of a fun, like live shark tank thing. I love it. I okay, uh, awesome. Please, let's do it. You talked to Yad, right? Uh, yes, I did. Right. Okay. So did Yad? Did Yad tell you that I'm like the chairman of this company? Uh, he didn't mention that. Uh, he said that you uh, and he had gone for a walk and uh, you know come up with the concept of rectangle. He gave you all the credit for uh, coming up with the idea and the concept for it. Right. So like, I maybe chairman is not the right title. I don't really care about the title. I don't care that much about ownership or whatever. I want to be a significant um, controller. I would prefer to be the be, be the overall controller of the company, but I'm sort of like thinking about how to do this. Basically, what I'm trying to say is I don't have the bandwidth to run this company, but like the idea is very sound. Um, so this this company, Rectangle, right? Um, basically, open source Stripe. Um, so I guess Yad gave you the skinny on it. I mean, what were your critiques or what were your biggest critiques? Well, so, I mean, look, let's start with, you know, a premise that I typically start with in companies at this stage, which is that ideas are cheap. Execution is hard. The value is in execution. Um, is the idea of an open source Stripe sound? Absolutely. Could open source Stripe happen? Yes, for sure. Will open source, will open source Stripe happen? I would say it's likely. Uh, just given the, the macro trends that we are living with in terms of the evolution of APIs, the evolution of, of the, you know, the entire ecosystem of tech stacks and how companies are consuming them. Yes, I think it's likely that it will happen. So all the questions over here are in the category of, not of when and how, not if. In other words, the thesis is sound, the idea is sound. Now it comes down to execution. And execution is messy. Execution is hard. Execution is error prone, and uh, we have to just work through each one of them, each one Great. of those elements. Great. So let's start with one one point I should make. So, um, so like I said, I'll be I will be involved in this company basically at like executive hiring level. So, what I'm trying to do is basically get Yad with some money and then help him with executive hires and build build a team around him. I know Yad's Yad's a great leader. Um, so as far as execution, let me let me first interrupt. Sure. Yad is a very interesting person. He yeah. has the kind of background that lends itself to being an amazing entrepreneur. Right. He's had all kinds of experience. And for those of your listeners who don't know, you know, having, uh, he comes from the Kurdish area of Iraq. He has seen enormous strife. He has seen lots of changes. He also has a great education. What I loved about him is that he has actually studied and he understands technology and he has worked with Tim Draper. And he understands how venture and entrepreneurship and the Silicon Valley ecosystem works. So he's got a set of diverse experiences which he can bring to bear on this. And if he was to lean in and spend, you know, all of the force of will on uh, on this, I think something very interesting can be built. Right. 
So, um, so let's talk about execution. So what have I executed on? Um, so software engineering daily is a very successful software engineering podcast, five days a week, um, five ads per show, uh, 50 weeks per year. So five, five ads per show times five shows per week times 50 weeks a year is 1,250 ad slots. Um, we sell each of those ad slots, um, quite aggressively. So, um, so we have like a well-run sales organization. Uh, you know, we have like a staff of three, basically that's after hiring a CEO recently. So needless to say, we're a very high margin business. Um, we have built some software, uh, software is not really core to our business. We're more of a podcast slash media business. Uh, but we have a lot of like uh, growth, like growth channels and, um, you know, the company is wholly owned by its, uh, by, by its, by the people that run it effectively. So that's so the incentives are like pu- more purely aligned than even a venture backed company. I feel, um, cause we have like, we have like a, a kind of like a cash driven, um, like reward incentive structure, uh, so that ca- causes people to like pl- play really aggressively, sort of like a Goldman Sachs style re- reward system. Um, so that's like, that's w- what I've done execution wise. Aside from that, I've done a bunch of failed startups, including one, uh, ad for prize that I literally poured all my money into because I didn't want to raise money for, for a company that I wasn't sure about. Like in my six years of podcasting, I haven't raised money once and I haven't really tried to raise money once. That's despite having a lot of bad ideas. Like I had a lot of bad ideas. I was like, I just, I don't want to pollute the waters. I want to make friends with all the venture capitalists. And then when I finally have good ideas, I can just be like, okay, give me money for this good idea. So that's where we're at now. Like rectangle is that idea. Uh, Jeff, I would again, uh, you know, ask you to think about the premise of the of your approach in making that conclusion that this is a good idea or a bad idea. I don't think ideas themselves. I mean, there are some that are obviously bad ideas or obviously great ideas, uh, but most ideas are in neither of those extremes. And I would respectfully submit that rectangle is not in either one of those two extremes. Uh, maybe it is a little bit. You know, you could I could argue it's closer to the obviously good idea rather than an obviously bad idea. Uh, but it's, it's about execution. It's about what you do with it. Steve Jobs has a wonderful video where he talks about where greatness, you know, where that insanely great quality that makes Apple so great comes from, where he talks about visiting this old man who lived down the street from him when he was a kid, who showed him how to take two ordinary rocks, just pick them out of his garden, throw them into a a can of coffee and he was connect them to a motor and he would run that motor overnight. And you know what happens to those rocks the next day? I mean, they make this massive noise. And of course, I'm not talking in any way the elegance with which Steve Jobs describes this story, but you can look it up on YouTube. and, And he has this wonderful video where he says, you come back the next day and you have these beautiful, round, smooth, amazing rocks that started as just two ordinary rocks that you picked at random out of the garden. There was nothing special about them the day before, but the pressure and the repetition and the grinding that they went through overnight made them into two special rocks. And I think that's what makes companies great. That's what makes startups great. That's what makes people great. People become great when they throw themselves at the problem in that fashion, the way you have done with your podcast. And today you are so well recognized. I have had my CEOs, you, you know, you've actually invited a couple of them before who have asked me, hey, can you introduce me to Jeff? I'd love to be on that podcast. That is the outcome of that work that you put in where you were the rock, which came out as this gleaming gem on the other side, which is what you are today in the world of podcasting. 
appreciate the uh, appreciate the the compliment. Um, but uh, but in terms of implementation, like I mean, so you so you are critiquing the idea that like basically, okay, Jeff's got a kind of flashy sounding idea. I don't really care. I want to hear about the implementation. Like that's kind of what I'm hearing from you, right? Is that fair? Like let's talk about the implementation. Um, I'm saying yes, but what I'm also saying is you have this idea. Now tell me what will give you an unfair advantage with this idea. Gotcha. Now tell me your, to your point, what is the implementation? Now tell me what would you do, which someone else hasn't thought of that you are working with that will allow you to win in a way, which will then let you leverage that into the next step. And then the next step. Sure. Gotcha. And by the way, I'll just, just to, and this is just to sweeten the conversation a little bit. Um, so just want to let you know, it's like our first two investors are JJ from OSS Capital and uh, who is like the best in, I would argue the best in open source and, um, and then Hasib from Dragonfly, who I'd argue is the best in crypto. So those are our first two major investors. And then we have a third. Congratulations. Thank I you. Mean, JJ Hasib, fabulous. Thank you. Now, I don't say that because like, I believe you're something, somebody who's just going to like follow the herd or something, but I'm just saying like, you, you, you know, you, there is like obviously some kind of signal there, like, you know, undeniably. And so I'm just hoping that it'll, it'll just like, um, anyway, I, give me some more credibility as I, as I enter the implementation discussion and, and the sort of like, how, what is the product sequencing discussion and so on. So, so look, um, I say this with all due respect to the company, both companies actually, but Stripe is the new Oracle and everybody knows it. Like nobody wants to be locked into the Stripe ecosystem. Everybody has to be locked in because it's, maybe it's the new AWS, right? But AWS is the new Oracle. Like, I mean, not Oracle in the sense that they're actually going to exploit you anytime soon, but it's just the fact that they could exploit you. Just the fact that they have so much leverage over you and you don't really have any portability. I mean, you know, this is an engineering leader. It's just, it's simply annoying, right? It's simply annoying to have somebody domineer over you. This is what, like, it took me six years of podcasting to understand this, but like, that's the whole reason why open source is a huge deal is like, you can't, you can't be screwed in the way that Microsoft screwed people in the 90s. You just can't do that um, with, with an open source system because it, it, it creates a market competition level that, uh, that just creates like very, very desirable software. So open source is a very big deal. Um, Jeff, that was Stallman's original insight. Right. You know, he called it software wants to be free. Um, people want to be free. And that is absolutely unequivocally a true statement. And I agree with you completely over there. But to build a company and to then have that be a business on a long-term sustainable basis, you have to balance between those two extremes. Yes, for sure, people want to be free. They don't want to be locked into an ecosystem. They don't want to be held hostage, et cetera. But people also want reliability. They want a single throat to choke. They want predictability in what the in what uh, the the future holds in terms of the roadmap. They want to to they want CYA. They want cover your ass. In other words, no one ever got fired for buying Oracle. No one ever got fired for buying IBM, etc. And people want that in jobs. And so you have to understand that is part of the allure of buying Oracle or of buying AWS is that it's obviously the right decision. Uh, if you are a mid-level manager who is not creative, who is not thinking from first principles, who is only playing perhaps a political game inside their organization, it's an easy decision to say, let's just buy Oracle for the database. You must be playing the devil's advocate here. You can't be serious about this argument, right? 
Like you're basically arguing that Oracle is a successful company, which it kind of is, but basically the the moves that it has taken have gotten it into a completely unwinnable position relative to AWS. What I'm arguing is that if you want to be an entrepreneur and if you want to run a startup, your goal is to have the problem that Oracle has. Your goal in life is to reach the stage where people right. want okay. to escape from where you are because you need some form of lock-in. You need some barrier that you are creating, which you are then able to get a consumer surplus on. That's just first principles. There's got to be, I mean, Peter Thiel calls it running a monopoly. You know, you want to build a monopoly. Absolutely. So I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Um, do you know the, do you know much about the WordPress ecosystem? No, that's not an area I've spent time on, unfortunately. Okay, can I can I give you a quick analogy using the WordPress ecosystem? Sure, yeah. Okay, so the WordPress ecosystem. Um, WordPress founded probably, I don't know, 14, 15 years ago, something like that, maybe longer, yep. uh, by Matt Mullenweg. He also created WordPress.com. So you have the WordPress uh, open source project, and you have WordPress.com, which is like Matt Mullenweg's hosted edition of WordPress. Of WordPress. Now, WordPress.com is like pretty good. It's like a pretty well-run company, but it's like actually not the best WordPress company. The best WordPress company is WP Engine. So WP Engine is like is like the powerhouse. Like if you go to Austin and you like look for the coolest places to work, WP Engine is one of them. Why is WP Engine cool to work at? Because it's hard to run WordPress well. Like WordPress is a database, it's a front end, it's a back end, it's e-commerce, it's like everything. Like what, what? What's the statistic? Is it eighty percent of the internet is WordPress, or sixty percent of the internet is WordPress? Have you seen that statistic? I haven't seen that number, but I do know it's you know dominant. No question it's, it's, about it. it. Like literally, of websites that people go to, like fifty to sixty percent are WordPress websites. It's it's that's kind of a staggering statistic. Like you can you I think there's a credible argument to be made that WordPress is the is like the the web. It's like the Linux of web application development. It's like kind of like that universal. Maybe not the Linux. Maybe the what's I mean? What's the best analogy? Like what is what is WordPress to the to the browser? Um, you know, certainly, for example, in the U.S., you, you can think of it as the phone, right? I mean, you know, the iPhone dominates right. uh, in the U.S. ecosystem. Doesn't mean we don't have Android or we don't have Samsungs, etc., that people are using. Uh, but it's a very special and very important part of that eco- of the mobile ecosystem is the iPhone. Right. Right. Okay. Great analogy. Okay. So WordPress, I think what we're building is like WordPress, where basically payments are such a rich ecosystem that we need to make a spin up your own Stripe-like piece of infrastructure. Basically, like, you know, if you want to build a domain-specific payments company for drones, you should be able to do that. Not only that, based on what domain specificity you're targeting, our software, Rectangle, will allow you to config to route your payments through any payment gateway. So like normally, your payment gateway is sort of like, you know, just goes through Stripe or whatever, or goes through PayPal, like whatever payment gateway system you use. But like we're the service mesh for payment gateways, right? We're the federation layer. For payment gateways. Does that make sense? Does that sound compelling? Totally makes sense. It's totally compelling. And what I'm saying is that if you pair that with actual execution and build this to a scale and a size that matters, which let's say, put a number on it, 100 million in revenues, uh, half a billion in revenues, a meaningful business, if you put around that, you will then create a gravity. 
you will then modify the rest of the world, which will start thinking this is a better way of doing things. This is the right way of doing things. And things will evolve around you as a mechanism and a way of doing things with it. So there isn't a right or a wrong answer as the future architecture for technology or for payments. These are relatively arbitrary decisions that we have made. In the US, credit cards are very popular. In other parts of the world, they are not popular at all. Um, in India, the government open sourced a payment stack and revolutionized online payments. They did it because they were trying to create a low cost way and to reduce corruption, to make payments more transparent and reduce the cash economy. So people do it for different reasons in different places. And you end up with these solutions, which only in hindsight, can you go and say, aha, that's why they were doing that. And what I'm telling you is that the future is path dependent. If you have a great entrepreneur who takes a particular path and decides that that is the way they want to approach the future, that increases the likelihood that the future will look like that. I mean, I think we're agreeing here. I, I'm yes, not sure. Absolutely. I okay. am agreeing with you. Gotcha. I, and I, but I'm going taking it to the next step. And I'm also telling you how it will, how it is that we will agree. Why okay. the outcome will come out that way. Great. Okay. So then I want to know, do you want to invest? And if not, why? Uh, the reason why a fund, so I haven't made a decision. I just met him, you know, a couple of days ago. Um, the, the answer to your question, I can tell you what the framework is that I use in terms of making that decision. For me, the framework is team, clearly very interesting team over here, market size, clearly the market size is very interesting, technical insight, not clear if your barrier or your unfair advantages are coming from technology, but you are clearly innovating in technology. You are you know, above the minimum bar of what would be a clear high tech very interesting stack that you would end up building. So yes, check over there. A business model, TBD, but obviously at the seed stage, you know, would exist and can be created, especially in the payments place. I mean, if there's one place where there are obvious business models to be built, it's in the payment space. And so I would say, you know, clear check over there. So yes, very interesting opportunity. Then you flip it around and look at it from the inside and say, okay, does it fit into my fund today? Is it at the right stage, at the right valuation, right ownership, right expectation of the next round, et cetera? Will it follow a journey that is compatible with the portfolio that I'm trying to build at the end of the day? Every venture firm has some fund construction in mind, has some portfolio that they are going to run. And so then you see, is it a match? So independent of quality is the access of match. Does it match what you're trying to do? Um, so all of those are examples of things that you look at. And then in the end, you have to look at it as a package deal and say, is it in or is it out? All of these variables, some of them will be conflicting. Some will be great. Some will be so-so in terms of the answer. And then you make a package deal decision at the end. And in my particular case, I also have a capacity limit. I'm a solo GP. I do very small number of deals. We are in a very active market right now. Lots and lots of deals to look at. And so I have to make hard choices. Absolutely. And I have full respect for that. Um, that said, I, as, as a friend and somebody who I really, really want involved in this company, I want to put maximal pressure on you to invest. Is that okay? Sure. All right. Uh, All right. Yeah, so I'm going to put, I'm going to put some maximal pressure on you here. Is that okay? Yeah, go for it. Okay, great. So, so we just pitched to Andreessen earlier today. We pitched to Ariana Simpson from the crypto team 
and um, she's deliberating and we really want her also like but the thing is the, the, the thing is the way that we want to play this is basically i hate this fundraising environment more than anybody else i want to get out as quickly as possible yad does too so we're like capping it at 3 million. And the reason we're doing it, we're like hard cap at 3 million. We've already raised 1.8. Literally there's 1.2 left. And after that, we're closing and building. The reason we're doing that is because every fundraising process that we're going to do is going to be as tight as possible. We want the market to know that we don't mess around. We just want to close things as soon as possible. Um, so all that being said, like, please deliberate as long as you want. Send me as many emails as you want. Like, deliberate as long as you want because i totally respect your process and if i think if you get to know it's going to be a very rational no i'm not even saying here that like you must invest in this company or or you're an irrational person we're just trying to create the maximum like let's get this done really quickly because we're going to build on this for a long time well you know let's face it most entrepreneurs hate fundraising it is one of their least favorite activities which they have to do as as a ceo it's gotten better um, as I look at it over the last four, five, six years, you know, we've gotten to more founder friendly and just sort of this, the higher speed actually is better for CEOs because they hate the grind and they hate those ambiguity stage that they have to go through. Um, I've been on both sides of this, so I know the feeling and I do my best to mitigate it that you can. Uh, and I very much appreciate your transparency, the clarity with which you've laid it. Um, you know, your willingness to create this, quote, artificial uh, scarcity. I mean, the 3 million is obviously an arbitrary number. Well, by the uh, way, here, one thing I want to say, as soon as the $3 million close, like we're probably going to double the valuation to start raising again. Of course, exactly. Like, which is why I, I mean, I was politely so, calling so it an artificial scarcity. But, and- but here, here's the other thing. Here's the cr- kind of crazy thing that we're going to implement. So like, basically, we want to do it such that Every round, the previous investors have the rights to purchase as much as the subsequent round as possible because we want to really reward people who get in early. Again, I think you are creating a perfect Shark Tank-like approach in terms of you know creating pressure and reversing the view, uh, reversing the pressure on VCs. Usually VCs are in the in the catbird seat, they're buying, they have time to do it. Obviously, in a market like this, that's not necessarily true. And I think you've done a very, very adroitly positioned it in a way that creates that, uh, that scarcity. And hats off to you for doing it. Okay, well, that said, can we talk a little bit more about critiques and like technical risk and like how you're thinking about the risk and how I can help you get to yes? Um, so I haven't done a lot of work on it right now. Uh, the, like I said, it's a brand new introduction for me. I would clearly want to spend more time with Yad. I mean, he's very important in this company, his role, understanding that the second open question for me was how is the cap table going to evolve Mm. at the end of the day, our job as VCs is to buy and sell stock in other words, equity. And so it is the cap table that we are really buying, uh, the PNL and the balance sheet is what drives the valuation on the cap table, hopefully. Um, so, you know, getting some clarity on that, I think, is really important and, and understanding how you how you are going to participate, how he's going to participate, how the company is going to grow. I think those are open questions uh, right now uh, in my mind. And I'll bring up my notes and sort of see what I wrote down. I just yeah, I'd love to gotten, hear it. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I just hadn't gotten those are all open questions. Yeah, that, yeah. Can, uh, can you want me to address one of them? Sure, go for it. Sure. So the ownership is kind of interesting. So like what I'm trying to do here is like. I don't really want to operate this company, but I think I have, I think I had the idea and I think it's pretty powerful because I've been thinking about it for a really long time. I think I know how to do it. Like if I want it, if I wanted to, I could probably incubate this under software engineering daily if I want literally hire engineers to do it. Like 
we've got great cash flows, right? I can inv- I can direct those cash flows at different projects. I can fund this all myself. I just think it's more fun if you do it big, if you bring in other people, you bring in some investors, you get some counsel. Like I've got cash flows. I really do. It's just, I, and I would much rather throw throw my money at like a project than Robinhood. Like I don't care about Robinhood. I want to do like gambling. And, and it would probably be just as successful as that email that was just recently came out where Jeff Huber, who at that time was VP of engineering at Google, replied back when this YouTube investment was made saying, we just need to put one more engineer on our video uh, effort and we don't need to buy YouTube. Uh, We could probably pay 10 or 15 million for them. Uh, So I can send you a copy of that email telling you what happens when people do things as a side project as compared to as devoting themselves to that project. And you're a very special person, Jeff. Okay. And I'm, and I'm not, I'm not trying to blow hot air here. I think you're a special person. I think you need to put all your wood behind one arrow, pick that arrow and put your wood behind it. And it will go far and will have dramatic impact in what it does. It is not accidental that Bill Gates had to drop out of school or Mark Zuckerberg had to drop out of school to pursue their companies. The important thing there is not that they left the school or with school they left or where they were in their career. The important thing there is that they devoted themselves wholeheartedly to doing one thing and one thing only. I spend 100% of my time on engineering capital. That is the only thing that interests me and the only thing that I spend time on. And I think that is a prerequisite to success. And that is true for every person who takes and has a, has a great impact. Very, very good advice. Um, a piece of information. Uh, I have a CEO for each of the companies that I'm a part of. So I hired about a month ago, I hired, uh, I shouldn't say I hired, I appointed a CEO of software daily. Um, she's really, really great. And um, we, ha- we have, we're finalizing the details of the contract um, so I don't want to speak too soon, but I think she'll be excellent. And basically my role as, as a person in software daily is just going to be podcast host. So basically my influencer marketing channel, which I think is highly useful to any enterprise that I'm a part of, but that's like seven hours a week, maybe five hours a week, maybe. I mean, there's a lot of hours spent into email and maintaining a host role, but like that stuff can be outsourced over time. So the host is kind of the, the inflexible thing. However, um, I've got a CEO for the other company, the other, the gaming company I'm doing. So uh, we're inking that deal. And, uh, you know, that's not what this pitch is about, but we've already got like 2.4 uh, out of three raised for that company. So like, um, you know, that one's off the ground and I've got a CEO for it. Or I got a CTO and like, I don't have to do anything. Like I've got the whole idea written out. Everything's written out. The whole company's like going, moving towards building a flywheel. So like, I don't have to do anything there. This company's kind of the same. Like Yad can do everything. He, ne- he knows how to do everything there is to, know, to, to do. The idea is so big that even if we're a little slow in implementation, this is going to work. Um, and so like, I, I just, I want to remove from the equation, if we can, the key man risk of Jeff Meyerson, cause I, I, I'm not required for this job. I don't think. Uh, I don't think any person is required in any company. In other words, no one is indispensable, but every company has people who become indispensable. So I think the question here is, is, is Jeff Meyerson going to devote himself to these multiple companies and this podcasting and the ideas that he's pursuing, which could be the best outcome for you personally. And that's fabulous. And hats off to you for your creativity, for being an iconoclast, for being willing to create and craft a 
uh, an opportunity set that is ideal for yourself. Hats off to you for that. However, my job is to evaluate a single company, a single opportunity and see what is the trajectory and the path for that. And for that, the question is, who are the people who are devoted fully to that? Um, I think Jeff Meyerson would be amazing in any one of these companies. And if he was to devote himself to them, it would increase the odds, increase the value and increase the outcome over there. But that's his choice. That's a personal lifestyle, desire, wishes, choice that you have to make of what you want to do. And it sounds to me, I mean, just from what I know of you, that you are doing the perfect thing for yourself over here. If I separate the companies out now, then I have to look at them and say, okay, what will make this company successful? Who is the person? Then you have to evaluate the CEO who you brought in you know, on the gaming company or yard um, relative to rectangle, et cetera, and then make an assessment on that. And I think that's a beautiful thing. The fact that we have this flexibility is a beautiful thing, but I just want to recognize that those are overlapping, but separate circles that you are evaluating. I mean, I mean, you know, betting on Jeff Meyerson's lifetime earnings is a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer bet. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. But uh, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to pay any attention to that flattery for a moment. Um, it isn't flattery, Jeff. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm giving you a framework. I well, mean, thank you. you okay. know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's just I'm. You know about mathematical induction, right? Like prove the, like present the base case, prove the inductive yes. step. Yes, like, of course. You're familiar with that. Okay, so like. That's how I think about business. So like all I need to do in every business that I run is to present a base case and prove the inductive step. So for each of these businesses, I can tell you the base case and I can tell you the inductive step and I can tell you why I can prove the inductive step and why I can force the inductive step. And like that includes rectangle. So like if you want, if you want, I can run through like base case and inductive step for, for, for rectangle and why like all you need is like basically a baseline level of competency for running it, which Yad absolutely has. And he has much like very far beyond that. Like I said, in the beginning, Yad, I think is a special person and a base plus inductive step is, uh, is, is a dangerous framework to use for a company. Do you really think so? Cause like today it's so easy to build stuff. Like it's not hard. Like hiring is easy for somebody a like base me. plus inductive step assumes that the external environment stays the same as you apply the induction again and again and again. It, in the real world, it changes. Well, this is why Bezos says, always look for the things that don't change, right? Like totally something, agree. That, something that doesn't change, rectangles. They're always there. Like you always need a rectangle. We are the rectangle between the fiat and the crypto world. Like it's a big, big, big problem space. It's like, I, a, as, it's like as big of a problem space as like the concept of an API. Like, how do you convert between the fiat and the crypto world? It's just it's too, super huge. And Jeff, I have zero disagreement with you on that. So we are in complete agreement over there. All I'm trying to do, and maybe it's coming across as a little bit as a devil's advocate, is giving you framework. No, I love it. I love it. You I mean, know, I totally All I'm doing it. is telling you what is the thought process that a good, thoughtful investor should go through right. when, they're thinking about it, when they're thinking about an opportunity. And most of the time, you know, you, you come up with a good answer one way or the other. So like zero to one, right? My favorite business book. It sounds like you've read it too. How many times yes. have you read it? I've only read it once, but yes, it's an, it's, I think it's a very well-written book. It's a okay. thought-provoking, thoughtful view. And it's elegant, right? It's like super elegant. Yeah. So, it's yeah. like, so it's like six, 
I've read it six times, uh, six and a half maybe. Um, so I wrote this book, Move Fast, right? You, you haven't had a chance to read it yet, right? You're still, like, still waiting to, to get a chance. By the way, I publishes a free audio book on the podcast if you want to listen to it there. Um, I actually prefer reading, so I will oh, okay. I All have right, a hard great. copy and I will be reading it. Okay, great. Well, so in writing that, first of all, it took me two and a half years to write that book and it almost killed me. Like it was really hard. Um, and I, I am so influenced. Like I wanted to write a better business book than, than, um, uh, than, than zero to one. Like, that's really what I wanted to do. That's one of the, that was one of the main goals. Cause I, I just thought zero to one was like, like such a, it's basically shaped who I am as a business person. Like it's cause it, it has such clarity in, in, in its thinking and so elegant, so concise. So you can reread it a lot. And there's those weird animations in it. Like, you know what I'm talking about? Like the cartoons, yeah, for sure. Like very weird, like totally weird and hilarious book. Yeah. Um. And, and Peter Thiel has this like deadpan humor style that's like kind of creepy. It's so good, it's creepy. Um. That's like why Peter Thiel is like a meme person. He's just he's got so eloquent philosophy and and the whole like derivation of of Rene Girard is super fascinating. All that stuff is really really cool and catchy. Um. But like one of the things that I discovered in writing this book, Move Fast, is that there is a management science that is undiscovered. And that management science is on display at Facebook. So like in these interviews, in these 25 interviews, and then scouring the transcripts for interesting facts, and then rearranging the, the interesting facts into narratives, and then turning the narratives into an overall structure of product and culture and engineering and understanding how Facebook actually functions as a company and how it produces systematic innovation with a full stack engineering approach, like not using external cloud providers. Like there's some crazy stuff going on there and it, it shows you how software can be built. So really like what rectangle is, is like a thesis and then like a culture around that thesis. And I really think that's all you need today. That's like literally like the minimum that you need because the infrastructure is really easy to build. Like we're probably going to host on like, I don't know, Firebase or something, right? It's like going to be like a, a random GitHub repository that's going to be like very simple. Like it's not hard to build a federated payment system. It's very, very trivially easy. Um, you know, it's a basic website. It's all going to be open source. We're going to stand it up on rectangle.one. We're going to have a hosted version of it. Super simple. Like we're going to do a community around it. It's going to be super simple. Literally yesterday, Jack Dorsey tweeted that Square is going to do the exact same thing. Square is making an open payment system. Like we're rectangle. Like rectangles always trump squares. <laughs> um, you know, there was so much material that you just shared that I feel, you know, I, I, I want to interrupt and respond to it. Let me start with the management science question, because that is fascinating to me as an investor. Firstly, I used to run a company before um, and obviously worked at VMware and SGI and, and I saw different management styles um, at HP. Um, I just want to recognize that technology itself requires and allows you, most importantly, allows you to invent new ways of managing yourself. And so we will see tremendous innovation in that. We have unleashed a new form of innovation around it in something which had become relatively static. So post-World War II, you know, we inherit this very military style of management science, and that permeates a lot of industry, and that has clearly now grown accelerated by, by COVID uh, and, uh, and enabled by technology into this new form. And we're going to see all of these changes. I'm looking forward to reading your book because I don't have a lot of visibility into Facebook. I'm actually reading a, a similar book right now, which is about Apple, uh, which is published by that principal engineer. I forget the title right now. It's upstairs next to my bed uh, over there, uh, which talks about how Apple works. I think that's the title of the book. 
Um, and I think they also have their own style, but they had the power of a person like um, Steve Jobs, who they were leveraging in terms of his insights, his product acumen, uh, and of course, you know, his uh, celebrity, which also became part of what Apple was able to leverage and then build a great, a great company around it. But let's go back 100 years, right? I'm sitting right here in Palo Alto right now in the shadow of Leland Stanford, who built a great railroad who ran the company by sending one telegram every day. That was his management style, okay? So here he is, the CEO of a company who has very poor, highly attenuated communication, and he is sending a single telegram and running and building of an entire railroad. Compare that to the way we communicate today. We Slack channels, emails, text messages, uh, phone calls, Zoom calls, et cetera, et cetera. So um, management is also a product of what capabilities are available to you. He had very limited capabilities available to him, yet he was able to accomplish great things. And so uh, I think you will see enormous evolution in how software is built, how technology is built, and how people come together. Frankly, that is not my core expertise. That's not what interests me. What I love to do is really, I am a computer scientist. I love technology for technology's sake. And so I look at technical problems from a computer science perspective and say, where can you apply them? What could you do in computers? What is the edge of computer science today? And there are so many problems that computer science has undertaken. Privacy is an unsolved problem. Security is an unsolved problem. End of Moore's law is an unsolved problem. There's so many problems in computer science. Engineer productivity is an unsolved problem in computer science. Um, you know, we are still subject to the mythical man month. The mythical man month was written in 1971, uh, and we are still subject to the mythical man month. No one has solved that problem in computer science. So lots of problems which exist over there. And uh, you know that just happens to be what fascinates me. That's what I enjoy. But there's nothing which makes it right, wrong, more lucrative, or less lucrative than one or the other areas to focus on in Silicon Valley. Can I give you a few of the management science innovations that impressed me? Absolutely. I'd love it. Okay. So the, the first one is, let's see, what's, okay, I think I've got two, one, two. Yeah, I'll give you the, uh, you know, I'm just going to focus on one. So my favorite is bootcamp plus headcount. Um, have you heard about Facebook bootcamp? Yes. Okay. So just to review, Facebook bootcamp, after you do these stupid interview questions, like reversing a linked list or whatever, you get into Facebook, like you qualify, you're, you're accepted to work at Facebook. And, uh, and you go to bootcamp and in bootcamp, you basically learn the basics of how Facebook engineering works. So that's kind of cool. Like, you know, they have this, like whatever, two week process, three week process, not super original, like plenty of companies have this kind of thing, just like a extended fun onboarding process. Um, Facebook's is a little bit more collaborative than, than other people's. And, and there's sort of a leveling process to it where like, even if you're a staff engineer, you're joining Facebook, you have to go fix some stupid HTML bugs. The whole idea is like everybody's got to paint the fence or like, you know, scrub the toilets or whatever. It's a, it's a kind of a bonding exercise, kind of interesting. Um, not, not a feature of a company that I would want to work at, but it's like still kind of interesting. Um, and, and then they have, they have this thing headcount. And, um, and headcount is like the allocation, like let's say the quarterly allocation of the number of people that each team can hire. So like, let's say the React VR team. 
the React VR team maybe has, you know, a headcount of one to be, to be added every quarter because it's like, is it really that important of a team like React VR? Like, yeah, it's kind of cool. Like, let's get one one additional engineer per quarter. And then, so like the, the hiring manager from that team, or more maybe more likely just a manager because like you don't need a hiring manager if you have like if you're getting one headcount per quarter, you're just a manager. But like your 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 way of recruiting that one headcount is you have an interface into bootcamp. So like bootcamp is like your your presentation of potential hirees, like this pool of resumes and like and like talent. And you basically you get to go to bootcamp and interact with new new grads or new hires or like whatever, like these people who are joining the company and like going to Facebook bootcamp and you can basically like mix with them and like talk to them and chat with them and find who would be the best fit. It's like it's the sorting hat. You you have you read Harry Harry Potter? Like you know the sorting hat from Harry Potter? Yes. Okay, so it's like the sorting hat it's basically the sorting hat for software roles at Facebook. So like, because Facebook can do this, like I, I know this because I interviewed all the software companies, Facebook is probably the happiest, like maybe like, you know, accounting for size, Facebook strikes me as the happiest. So like, it's kind of crazy. Cause like Google is, is like at, probably on the same scale in terms of like raw, raw high margin profitability. Right. You'd expect Google to be like a pretty happy place. Microsoft, maybe Microsoft is like, has margins on par with, with, with Google, I'm not sure or with uh, Facebook. I'm not sure about that, but like Facebook, simply strikes me as as widely happy. I mean, does that sound consistent to your experience, or do have you talked to enough Facebook people to agree with me? Uh, it is consistent. Uh, people are very happy from what I hear. And the other interesting thing that I hear from them, I haven't confirmed this, is that Facebook is not necessarily managed on a time basis. Almost all companies, especially public companies, have this quarterly, annual, etc. Review. Uh, schedule. And many things at Facebook, I believe, are run with certain outcomes in mind and not certain timelines in mind. And that's, I think, a very interesting way to run a company. It's a very interesting way to organize people, to manage to an outcome as compared to to a schedule. And uh, I think the experience at Facebook was that things actually happened faster than expected when they were managed without a timeline, but rather with a goal. And that is the, I think it's something that was lost on a lot of people. At, a lot of people derided, you know, Mark's uh, s- uh, statement of, you know, move quickly and break things. But it really gave them an agility and a speed that was unsurpassed. I think it's still unsurpassed. Okay. So that's that's really the, uh, you know, the key innovation. Um, one of the key management science innovations that I thought was really interesting. It's It's the kind of thing that I think you can actually apply more readily to a company with modern tools. So like, if you wanted to build a bootcamp headcount system, you could do that with uh, with low code is what I find interesting, right? Like if you wanted to do that in your company, you could do it with low code. There should be a tool for this. By the way, if anybody wants to build this, I'll fund them. Like I will absolutely be the first check into that company. If you can build like literally bootcamp headcount for a bootcamp headcount as a service, I would just kill for that product. Um uh man see like this is why this is why this this like why i think like this is what i want to be doing is basically like establishing companies and then finding a ceo and moving on is because like i just have too many product ideas you know what i mean like and like i said i think it could be the perfect solution for what you know satisfies all the elements for jeff it's the optimal point right between risk reward but is it is it bad is it is it dangerous like is it is it like is is what is my strategy here just like totally dangerous or is it stupid or is like misguided because i don't know anybody else who's done this strategy right well i have the luxury of saying that in 10 years we'll know the answer with the benefit of hindsight you of course are actually going to experience what that outcome is Uh, let me let me get serious yes i actually think what you're doing is very good and 
what is so special is that we, you are actually able to do it because that is something that Silicon Valley or more broadly America enables. I'm an immigrant. I have seen other cultures, other countries and how they're organized. It would be very hard to imagine you doing what you're doing if you were to follow the stereotypes in Germany or in Japan. Right. If you think of how regimented they are, how organized they are, the cultural expectations for how people work, et cetera. So that's one of the special things about America. It is not accidental that Silicon Valley is in America, that so much innovation comes out of here, that because we embrace people like you, you can be who you want to be and arrange your life in the way it is. Now, this is suboptimal for someone else, but it's optimal for you. Great. Let's do it. You're welcome to do that. How good is it that we stayed in San Francisco instead of like moving to Miami? You know, that's another really interesting topic right now. Um, I'm long-term bullish on Silicon Valley. You know, clearly there's going to be some amount of attrition and distributed work will come in, et cetera. But the things that made Silicon Valley special were never the weather, were never the location uh, or the beautiful views that we have from the city. Those, if anything, were costs that were born. Um, Silicon Valley is a mindset, but it is also today a physical geographic location where there is a density of people, a density of ideas, two amazing universities, and an, a developed ecosystem at all levels. There are the Jeff Myersons of 20 years ago and the Jeff Myersons of 40 years ago who have moved on and are contributing and participating in the Silicon Valley ecosystem and nourishing that ecosystem from a completely different stage. Um, I just introduced one of my companies a short while back to Ram Sriram. Ram Sriram, one of the first investors in Google, served on the board of directors, very well known, obviously at a different stage in life, obviously looking at it from a very different perspective, but a few minutes with him, some thought and perspective is a special input that you are able to get right here. Why were we able to do that? Because he's part of the network, he lives over here, and the new founders are here, and that conversation could happen. Could you do this in Miami? It would be a lot harder, the network is a lot shallower, and there's a lot fewer people available to do it. And this exists at all levels of the ecosystem in Silicon Valley. So despite some of the dysfunctions that we have in our politics, despite some of the, the problems we have with housing and traffic and all of those problems, which are real, and I wish and pray and hope that we will solve them. Uh, I think Silicon Valley continues to thrive in Silicon Valley. All right, man, I, I wish we could talk longer, but I, I got to wrap up in like five minutes. Um, so let me, let me tell you this. So, um, you know, whether or not you invest, like I want to hang out, like get dinner or something. I think that'd be really fun. Um, I, I'd love to talk to you about. You this. just proved my previous point. We're gonna grab dinner. I'm yeah. in the city two days a week, and Great. I will I will look you up. Great, that sounds fun. Um, and like, okay, the way to think of it is like, if the if if I'm successful in this strategy, I'll certainly be coming to you with the next company, right? So like, and if I'm unsuccessful, then it's a good that you didn't invest. So like, you probably should pass, right? Because like, you 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 basically are like perfectly hedged if you pass. Right. That is not that is not how I think. That's not I know it's I know it's not how you think. I'm just I'm just letting you sleep at night. Like yes, because I, I appreciate your because you might the, you the might miss out. out. Yeah, I think you're missing yes. out on rectangle, man. It's you're, fine, you're, but you're missing you're, out. 
you're giving me the off ramp and I appreciate that, but I hold myself to a higher standard. I mean, my job is to make that hard. Decision. Well, then you better hurry. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you loud and clear. So. Hey, it's been a real pleasure. We'll talk soon. Okay. Send me an email as soon as you want to like schedule dinner. Thank you, Jeff. I'll be in touch. Okay, great. Talk to you later. Take care.